The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. Happiness for many of us has become ultimate. It has become the thing that we search for, the thing that we are in pursuit of. In fact, happiness is interesting in our culture. It's almost become a trump card of sorts. Like if you ever want to get out, like if you want to ever dismiss the good things that a person in your life has, you can just use happiness. You can look at the person, right? They can be a beautiful person, married to the beautiful, a beautiful spouse, have the perfect job. All you have to do is, is say, but are they happy? And suddenly it dismisses all the good things in their life. Or you can actually also use happiness as a justification to do anything that you want to do. You can know what is good, what is wise, what is right, what is kind, what is loving. But a simple question but does it make me happy? We'll allow you to do whatever you want to do regardless of what is kind or good or right or loving. Happiness has become ultimate for us. It is the thing that we often pursue above all other things. Ruth Whitman, who is a journalist, wrote in the New York Times about her experience with happiness when she came to the United States. She was from Britain, and so she made some observation about her own experiences, and she, wrote, and she observed this in California. She said, I live in California, where the great American search for happiness has its headquarters. The notice board of the cafe where I write offers a revolving loop of different paths to bliss. The people taking part in happiness pursuits, as a rule, don't seem very happy. At the one and only yoga class I attended shortly after arriving in the United States, the tension and misery in the room were palpable, which makes sense because a person who was already feeling happy would be unlikely to waste the sensation in a sweaty room at the YMCA, voluntarily contorting into uncomfortable positions. The happy person would be far more likely to be off doing something fun like sitting in the park drinking. We pursue happy as ultimate. And the problem is, while there are hundreds of paths offered to happiness, they rarely lead to it. And in fact, the things that we are actually most often told will make us happy are not the things that will actually make us happy. And so what do we do with that? Today, we are in our final week of the series, Happy, and today, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn turn as we talk about this idea of being happy, because deeply connected to our happiness is how we process the moments of unhappy. It's how we deal with those places of pain and sorrow that are also, also deeply connected to the joy and happiness that you and I can experience. And so I believe as we press in and lean into that unhappiness, that for some of you, it's exactly the thing that you need to hear this morning. That some of you are coming into this place. Some of you maybe didn't even want to be here this morning and don't know why you're here this morning. And I believe that God has something to say for you. And others of you, you are not in that season of unhappy, but I also believe that this is one of those messages that God might have something to say that gets filed away and will come up in a moment where you need it, well, you'll remember a thought, you'll remember a scripture, you'll remember an idea that will help you in a difficult season. And so if you could open your Bibles to the book of Psalm 126. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 967. Now as we open to this psalm, I want to give a little bit of context for you as we enter into this scripture because I, I, what I want you to know 
is the place that I'm preaching from. Because as we talk about pain and we talk about sorrow and we talk about grief, I am not preaching from a place of having this figured out. I'm not preaching from a place of having walked through pain and sorrow and have come out the other side. I am preaching from a place of being in the midst of grieving and pain and sorrow with my family, of experiencing Grief, which is the great irony for anybody who, who has experienced grief, right? You, you refer to it as stages of grief, as though it's nice and neat and tidy, when it really should just be like called the grief lottery. Like you just roll a dice and see, like, which one are we going to feel today? Is it anger? Is it denial? Is it, is it depression? Like, what place am I going to be this week? So the place that I preach from, this is raw, this is painful. In May, our family experienced a miscarriage. And so the, the place that I preach from today is, is, is that Tyler should have been about six weeks old today. And that's hard. And it's hard because as a dad, I never prepared for or imagined that conversation with my kids. I never was prepared for my children to know that some babies don't make it in this world. I wasn't prepared for the experiences of joy being robbed with anger. I wasn't prepared for the questions. I wasn't prepared for the moments where suddenly things feel good and then very quickly that all changes again. Just a couple weeks ago, we experienced the joy. We set up the Christmas tree. And so we experienced, right, the excitement, the joy, the kids rushing outside so we can bring the tree and put it up in the house. Yet also there's the painful reality in the laughter and excitement and running around that there are only three ornaments that say baby's first Christmas. For my wife, the way that she processes and feels a lot of this is she, she, she'll write and so the way that she described her feelings in October, she, she said, I'm trying so hard to have fun with the kids, to do all of the fun things, but my heart just isn't in it. And so any of you who come into this place with sorrow, what I want to say is I, I know Because for so many of us, the joys of Christmas also remind you where the joy isn't present. For so many people, it's this time of year when you are reminded that you're supposed to be happy, that things are supposed to be good, that you're supposed to be excited, that you're also reminded that the things that used to bring joy don't bring joy right now. And so what do you do with that feeling? Because Christmas is not only a time of great joy, it makes us so deeply aware of where it's lacking. Which is why any counselor will tell you this time of year is always the busiest. Because there's something that happens as we approach the winter, as we approach the cold, as we approach the dark, and as all the family gatherings remind us that things at this family gathering are not the way that they were supposed to be. Because there's one less person, there's one less family member, there's one less friend, there's, there's, there's one new thing that wasn't on the radar that we are now dealing with. And what do we do? So what do we do with that sorrow? 
Because for many of us, the, the solution that we want to turn towards is to just get away from it. To not feel it, to run from it, to hide from it. Now what I think can be helpful for us when we talk about sorrow is also this realization of what sorrow is and what produces it. See, sorrow happens when things aren't the way we planned. Which means that the thing that brings me sorrow might look completely different from the thing that brings you sorrow right now. And that's okay. In fact, what I would encourage any of you in your grief, in your pain, in your sorrow, don't compare your sorrow to another person's. Because it's never helpful. In fact, the, the very thing, the, the way you actually deal with your grief is not by comparing your griefs. It's by actually working through it. By walking through the valley, by feeling those things. See, when we begin to compare each other's sorrows, what we'll do is we'll minimize our own sorrows and we'll invalidate our own feelings or we'll minimize another person's. And in the family of God, what Christ calls us to is not to invalidate our own experience or another person's, but to walk with each other in it. And so sorrow can come in all different shapes and sizes and forms. It can be caused by all kinds of experiences. And so some of you might experience sorrow because of a loss. Maybe for you it is a miscarriage. Maybe for you it is the loss of a child and suddenly you are face to face with the painful reality of death. Maybe some of you have lost a friend. Maybe some of you this Christmas have lost somebody that is not gonna be at the party next week. And so what do you do with that? For some of you, the sorrow can be caused by a betrayal. Because the person who said, I do, you never thought they would say, I don't anymore. For some of you, it was the person who was supposed to protect you, hurt you. And they abandoned you. For some of you, the sorrow can come even from something like a job. That the job that you thought brought you meaning and value and significance. That suddenly the thing that you had and you looked to and woke up in the morning to go to isn't the thing anymore. It isn't what you thought. It isn't what you experience. Even a good thing, even a good thing like your kids going away to college can bring up these feelings of sorrow. And so as your kids go away to college, it can stir up in you this sense of sorrow because this year looks a lot different than it did last year. And so even though it's good, it is still lost. And it's loss of what you thought things were going to be like. The change of a house can be a loss. It can be a better house and it can be a good house, but it's a loss of memories and experiences. A new job and a better job can be a loss of a life that you once knew because it changes your rhythm, it changes your family schedule, it changes life. Sorrow happens anytime when things aren't the way we planned because what happens in that moment is we thought things were going to be one way and then we grieve the loss of those things when they're not that way anymore. And the only way to then deal with that sorrow in a way that will produce joy is by feeling those feelings. In Psalm 126, it helps us by pointing to the Israelites' sorrows and by painting a picture of their own experience and the promises of God in the midst of it. I'll begin in verse one. It says this, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion, 
We were like men who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. It begins with this picture of a time when things were great, when a time where everything was the way we wanted it for our family, where there was laughter and there was memories and there was experiences. And so they're looking back and they are loving them and they are cherishing them, but they're saying all of this in the reality of right now, things aren't the way they were. There was laughter, but there's not right now. There was joy, but we don't feel a lot of it right now. And so they, in this moment, are remembering the way things were, when they could say to each other, the Lord has done great things. But right now, they don't feel like he's doing much great at all. And so it's in this place where the Israelites and where the poet would paint this picture that things haven't gone according to plan. Now, the text doesn't really give us the context for this, so we don't know exactly where this falls in Israel's history, and it doesn't really matter, because if you know the history of the Israelites, what you would realize is that this could be pretty much any time in the story of the Israelites, because over and over throughout their history, what happens is there are these seasons of joy and laughter and blessing, and then there are these seasons where it all falls apart. Seasons where, where things are good and then seasons where they're enslaved. Seasons where it feels like God is with them and it, seasons where it feels like he's absent. And so then in the midst of this, they are asking God, God, why does it not feel that way anymore? Verse four, they continue, it says, restore our fortunes, O Lord. In other words, they're in this moment remembering and they're looking back. They're looking back saying, God, remember the good days. Remember the way things were. God, can you just please bring us back there? Can you please make it feel the way it once felt? So he says, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now the Negev is a desert, and so it's painting this picture, it's this reality that this moment, when you look back to how things were, in the present moment, it feels like everything around you is just dry and lonely. It's a desert, so there's no life, there's no water. And so the, 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 the picture for the poet, he's, he's creating this picture where it's in desperation. But God, I am exhausted. I have been walking in this desert day after day, month after month, and I just need something to drink. Like, I don't even want to get out of the desert. Just give me a drink so it feels like I can last one more day in the desert. Say, God, I feel like I'm alone here. I feel like I'm by myself. I feel like I have nowhere to turn. God, can you just bring us back when it was easier? And then in verse five, it says, those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. He who goes out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with him. Now I want to dig in here because this is the difficult part of the text, and this is the part that changes everything. It's difficult because this is the part that takes some work. This is the part that you feel the pain and you feel the sorrow. You feel 
the emotion of it. He says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. In other words, the tears that you cry, the pain you feel, will be transformed. Jesus turns our sorrow into joy. But notice how the text says that happens. They are sowing their sorrows. They are sowing their tears, meaning they don't avoid them. They don't skip them. It's actually in the work that they do with them that leads to the transformation. It doesn't happen overnight. Sowing is not a process that you just, you just snap your fingers and it's over. And see, the reality, what most of us want in those moments, in those moments of pain, in those moments of suffering, in those moments of sorrow, we want a switch we can flip. We're in the darkness, so we just want to turn on the light switch and make everything feel different. But that's not what the text describes here. Although that sounds like it would be good, that's not actually the solution that is given to the problem. It's actually in that moment, we don't look for the switch to flip on, that we actually do the hard work of sowing our tears, that we actually feel the pain. Now, because most of us want to look for a switch that we flip, that we just can turn on the lights and suddenly it's all better, the problem with that is the way that we do that is we either run away or we numb. We run away from the feelings because it's too hard, because it's too scary, because it stirs up too many things within us that we don't want to feel, or we numb it so we don't have to feel it anymore. The problem with that is if you numb the pain, you will also numb the joy. Biologically, the way that God has designed you, the very same things that allow you to feel pain and sadness and grief and anger and loss. If you don't allow yourself to feel those things, you won't allow yourself to feel joy either. And so some of you, in trying to find a switch that you can flip, are also robbing yourself of life. So don't run. Don't avoid it. Don't numb it. That's why in Psalm chapter 23, it says, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Because the only way to the other side is through the valley. And sometimes you may feel like you have faith that could do anything, but other times it feels like you don't know how to take the next step. And Jesus promises to walk with you through that valley, in that grief, in that sorrow, as you weep, as you yell. And so the picture that gets created is a picture of seeds. And a number of times in this series, it's, we've used agricultural references like sowing and reaping. Now, thankfully, this is actually probably the easiest out of all the agricultural references to understand. You have a seed, and what do seeds do? They grow into plants, right? It's, pretty, it's that basic. And so what you have is you have seeds, and a seed gets buried, a seed you put into the ground, and over time, that seed grows into something else. And so you start with a seed, that seed goes into the dirt, and then eventually that seed becomes something that is living, something that is alive. Now, that doesn't happen quickly, but in time it happens. You have the seed, which gets buried, which eventually becomes life. And so this picture then for us also is not just a picture of the way the entire 
world is created, but it's a picture of what do we do with our own pain. Now, now the challenge, like if you've ever tried to watch a plant grow, it's not very exciting, is it? Like every now and then, like in preschool, your kids get the thing, and eventually, like if you don't kill the plant in the windowsill, like eventually you'll see like something come out of it. Right? If you try to though sit there and you try to watch the plant grow, it doesn't ever feel like anything's happening. If you just watch the seed, like you sit and you wait and you watch and you watch and you watch and nothing ever changes. And it's in that place, it's in that place of hurt and that pain. Because if you're trying to plant a seed too in the desert, how does it ever grow? But it's in the desert when grief has you in that place that tears are the way that God waters that seed. When there is nothing else that will allow that seed to grow, it's actually the tears, it's actually the things that you feel that God is present in. And he's present in because he has felt those things, he has experienced those things, and so Jesus is present with you in the midst of all of that. Growing that seed, that pain, into something new. And that hope, that hope that we cling to, that hope doesn't eliminate grief. In fact, some of you maybe have even heard this twisted idea that somehow if you're a Christian, you shouldn't feel those things, that suddenly life shouldn't be hard, that pain shouldn't be so painful, that loss shouldn't be so difficult because we have heaven and so it's, it's not actually gonna hurt. That is not true. Hope doesn't eliminate the grief. In fact, when the book of Ezekiel describes the work of God, it says, I'll turn their heart of stone into a heart of flesh. You know what that, you know what that probably means for pain? It means you're, as a Christian, you'll feel more of it. Which, if you're not a Christian, I, I know that's a bad selling point, but I, that's what it says, so I'm sorry. But it, it, it means, right, as a Christian, the pain that you probably feel it even more. Why? Because when you lose somebody you love, you know that's not the way it's supposed to be. Because when fathers abandon your kids, you know that's not the way this world is supposed to work. When injustice robs life and hurts people in our world, you know that's not the way it's supposed to be. When disease has ruined your life, you know that's not the way that God created this world to work. When a baby doesn't get born, you know that's not how it's supposed to work. And so you feel it more. But the truth of that heart that gets turned from stone into flesh that makes it hurt more is also the same thing that allows you to feel more joy than you ever thought possible. And the way that happens is from a seed that gets buried and becomes life. And so that seed is the source of your pain. That seed is whatever it is for you today that's bringing you sorrow. It's the person who walked out. It's the diagnosis you have. It's the conversations that you have to have with the doctor. It's the, it's the person who's not gonna be at the party. It's, it's the job that you thought you had but you no longer have. It's whatever that thing is, that's the source of your sorrow. And the way that that ever turns into joy is that sorrow gets buried. And burying it doesn't mean you don't deal with it. It actually means the opposite. It means you deal with it. It means you get messy. The dirt gets under your fingernails. You feel those feelings. And so you work the ground. And maybe, and maybe you're, you're like me, and so you have like a bunch of clay in your soil. And so you're breaking shovels trying to get some good soil that you can plant the seed in. And then the Michigan frost is probably going to mess it up. And so you keep working that soil, and you got to plant that seed. That's the feeling of grief. That's experiencing those feelings. And maybe what some of you need to hear is as you plant those seeds of sorrow that it's okay to feel what you're feeling. 
It's okay that you're depressed. It's okay that you don't feel anything right now. It's okay that you feel furious at God. That's the burying. That's the place that is the hard work. But it's in that burial work that then on the other side will come life. It's why the psalmist says that it's in sowing those seeds that you return with songs of joy, that something grows out of that, that if you stopped and watched, it doesn't feel like it's growing, but if you look and you trust, you can believe that something will grow even when it feels like nothing is happening. Between the seed and the promise, Jesus makes a promise of joy. He promises to move you from one place to the next. Now you might be asking, like, RJ, like, how can you say that? I don't say that because I'm over here and because I've experienced this and somehow I can speak to you from a place that, all right, let me tell you how great things are right now. Because that, that's not honest. But what I can tell you is that I stand here somewhere between the seed in life, and I'm just asking you to believe what I'm believing. And because while I haven't seen the joy, what I have experienced is that Jesus does make good on his promises. And it doesn't always feel like he's there. It doesn't even always feel very good. But I believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and he will do what he says he will do. Now get this, and here's what's incredible. In the book of Genesis, the way that it describes Jesus, in Genesis chapter 3, 15, it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. From that point on, Jesus had become known as the seed of a woman. Jesus, who would be born of a woman. Jesus, who would be the seed of Mary. What we celebrate at Christmas is that Jesus was the seed of a woman. And as the seed of a woman, by being born into this world, he experiences what you and I experience. He experienced pain and hurt and loss. There is no feeling that you have felt that Jesus hasn't also felt. And so Jesus, as the seed of the woman, is born into this world. And Jesus, as a human being, being born into this world, he experiences loss and abandonment and betrayal. In fact, Isaiah 53, which prophesies about Jesus, says that Jesus was a man of sorrows. And it says he was well acquainted with grief. Which means while you're digging in the dirt and doing that work, while you're feeling the anger and the sadness and the sorrow, while you're doing that, Jesus is so familiar with it. Jesus has done that work too. And not only that, but while you're digging, you may feel like you're alone in the desert, but Jesus is digging with you. Jesus, when his friend Lazarus died, the scripture tells us that Jesus wept. He knows what it's like to lose one of his friends. Jesus, right before he goes to the cross, he doesn't run away from the cross. Although he asks his father, he says, God, if there's any other way, like if there's any other way than this, God, please give me an out. It doesn't happen, but Jesus doesn't run, he suffers. 
And then while Jesus is on the cross, that, if anything, is the best picture of Jesus doing the suffering, of doing the work. And Jesus, while he hangs on the cross, he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If any of you have been digging in the dirt of feeling your pain and have prayed out to God, 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 where the hell have you been? God, why didn't you say yes? God, why didn't you heal? God, why didn't you show up? God, why didn't you stop that? That's what Jesus prayed on the cross. And there is no amount of anger, there is no amount of heartache, there is no amount of brokenness or betrayal that Jesus himself hasn't felt. And he feels that with you. And what the scripture says that all of that, as Jesus, the seed of a woman, gets buried in the ground, it says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. That while we look back to the way we wish things were, Jesus looks ahead and he endures the cross for your joy. And it was for the joy set before him. And so while he gets buried, he doesn't stay buried, but there is a resurrection. I believe for each and every one of us, there is a promise of a resurrection. There is a promise of life. There is a promise of joy that comes in the morning. And as Jesus meets you in this place, well acquainted with grief, well acquainted with sorrow, he meets you in that place gets in the dirt with you. And he says, we're not looking back to what we wish things would be like. He grabs your hand and walks with you one step at a time, moving you from your pain into the joy that he has in store for you. I want to close with prayer for us. And in that prayer, as you prepare to celebrate communion, what I want to do is I want to take a moment of confession, but as we confess, I want it not to just be a confession of the things that we're guilty of, but I also want it to be a confession, which is just agreement with God, a confession of the places where we feel the most helpless, the places where we feel the sorrow and the pain, because it's in those places of helplessness that as we cry out to God, as we sow those tears, that Jesus also promises to transform our pain into joy. And so we're going to take some time to pray and to confess and to trust that God transforms and rescues us out of our pain. Jesus, we thank you that you are a God who doesn't stay back and isn't at a distance, but you are a God who meets us where we are. We thank you for meeting us in the midst of our pain, in the midst of our sorrow. We thank you for being so familiar with grief and pain and heartache. And we just pray that you would meet us in those places. We pray that you would forgive us when we fail to trust, when we fail to believe. We ask that you forgive us when those things that we wrestle with hurt the people around us. And we pray that you rescue us in those helpless places, those places, those moments where we feel like we will never feel something different than what we're feeling right now, from those places where we feel like we will never be enough. God, I pray that you hear us in these moments as we confess both our sin and our helplessness. 
to you. The promise of Jesus to each and every one of us is that your sins are forgiven. That in whatever place that you find sorrow, that you are not alone. Jesus rescues you. And he redeems you. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.